As has been announced tonight, I want to talk with you about the Bible, the all-sufficiency of the Bible. Perhaps the most complete statement concerning the Bible, the Word of God, is recorded in 2 Timothy, beginning in, uh, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 15 and continuing on down into the next chapter, where the Apostle Paul said, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. I said that's the most comprehensive statement concerning the Word of God. I did not say that it's the longest. The longest statement in the Bible concerning the Word of God itself is Psalms 119. The 119th Psalm contains 176 verses, and that entire Psalm has to do with God's Word. And the Word of God is referred to by name in all of the verses in that chapter with the possible exception of two. It's referred to as the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the word of the Lord, thy statutes, thy commandments, thy judgments, and, and other terms. But it's referred to directly about 174 times in that chapter. If I were going to suggest to you a passage which I believe is the most beautiful passage in the Bible concerning the word of God, it would be the 19th Psalm, beginning in verse 7, where the Bible says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. I think that's the most beautiful passage in the Bible that deals directly with the Word of God itself. But there is a very short statement in Luke 16 and verse 29, which I consider to be the most powerful statement in the Bible concerning the all-sufficiency of the Word of God. 
It's a statement that, that goes like this. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now the background of that statement is this. A rich man had lived upon this earth and he had died and had gone to hell. He lifted up his eyes and recognized there a poor man who had been laid at his gate on a daily basis. And he begged Father Abraham to send that poor man, Lazarus, and dip his finger in water to cool his tongue. And when that request was denied, then he said, Send him back to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. It was then that Father Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Do you get the force of that statement? What was being said was this. The only thing which those five brethren need to go to heaven and miss hell is Moses and the prophets. That they have. But now Moses and the prophets were dead. What he was talking about when he said they have Moses and the prophets was the fact that they had the written word. They had what Moses wrote. They had what the prophets wrote. And this was during a time, of course, when that's what governed men. The New Testament had not been written at that time, not a line of it. All they had to do was just do what the written word said do. People, we are living in a time when people do not appreciate the Bible. They do not have respect for the Bible. They do not have confidence in the Bible. Consequently, false doctrine is rampant in this world in which we live. Even in the Lord's church, people will sometimes read what the Bible says or have pointed out to them what the Bible says concerning a particular matter, and they say, well, I know that it says that, but here's what I believe, as if to say that the Bible's wrong in connection with this matter. Or perhaps they are saying, it really doesn't matter what the Bible says. The Bible's not always right, and even if it is right, then it's not important that I do what is right. I hope tonight to be able to help you to have a, an increased appreciation for the written Word of God, for the Bible. Because everything that we're going to say in this gospel meeting is going to be based upon what your Bible says. We need to have a, an appreciation for the all-sufficiency of the Bible because of the fact that God is the author of the Bible. In Second Peter 1 and verse 20, Peter said this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's simply another way of saying that the men who wrote the Bible were guided by the Holy Spirit in that which they wrote. Men penned the words in the Bible, but God is the author of the Bible, is what that says. The Bible begins with God in Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
In Proverbs 1 and verse 7, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you think that you know a great deal, then remember, if you do not know the Lord, have no knowledge of God's will, then you haven't begun to learn, because the fear of the Lord is the very beginning of knowledge. In Psalm 19, the Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. You can look at the sun and the moon and the stars and know that there is some kind of a Creator. But before you can know anything about the nature of that Creator, you have to open your Bible and begin to read. You wouldn't know anything about the love of God if the Bible did not tell you about God's love. The Bible is all-sufficient because of its chief character, which, of course, is Jesus Christ. Everything in your Bible centers around Jesus Christ. In Acts 4 and 12, the Apostle Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Sometimes a person says, well, I just want Christ and don't bother me with what the Bible says. You can't have it that way, my friend. In John 12 and 48, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him at the last day. You can't have Christ separate and apart from his word. But again, the Bible is all sufficient because of its marvelous unity. And by that I mean simply this. The Bible was written by about 40 different writers over a period of about 1,600 years. Some of them spoke one language or wrote in one language, and some of them wrote in another language. The Bible was written by kings and by shepherds. It was written by physicians and fishermen and farmers. It was written in palaces and in prisons and in different countries. But whenever you take what all of these different ones wrote under different circumstances and put it all together, you have one complete unit with a beginning and an ending and with everything that goes in the middle to make it complete. Not one part of it is left out, and there is not one superfluous part. That's a marvelous book. The only way that that could be would be if somebody is guiding those men who wrote. Suppose that you were to give uh, 40 different men a hammer and a chisel and a piece of marble and put them in different parts of the world and say, Now, we want you to use this hammer and chisel and chisel on this piece of marble, and when you finish, we'll come around and pick it up. And you go around and pick all of it up and put it together, and it forms a perfect statue of a man doesn't work that way. You say, well, it could if each one had a perfect blueprint of what he was going to make, and if he followed that blueprint perfectly. Well, that's right. That's just exactly the way the Bible came into existence. God was the great architect, and God saw to it that each writer of the Bible wrote in exactly the way that he intended and wrote exactly the things that God intended. 
We need to have a great appreciation for the sufficiency of the Bible because of the scheme of redemption which is revealed in the Bible. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read about the creation of man, the fact that God placed man and his wife in the Garden of Eden, where everything, so far as I'm able to determine, was totally perfect. But in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells us about man's sin, the fall of man. He violated God's law. Consequently, he lost that paradise of Eden. But in that very chapter, there is a hint of a scheme of redemption which was to come. When God made reference to the fact that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the seed of the serpent on that occasion, a prophecy concerning the crucifixion of our Lord and his resurrection from the dead, when he would be victorious over Satan and over death itself. In Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now watch this next verse. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That said that God's scheme of redemption was according to his eternal purpose. The Bible tells us about the scheme of redemption in the eternal purpose of God. It tells us about God's promise to give that scheme of redemption, first of all to Adam and Eve in the garden, and then to Abraham, and then to the prophets on down through the ages until the time that Jesus came into the world. And then, during the days of Christ and John the Baptist, we read about that great scheme of redemption in its preparatory stages. It was being prepared, and John preached, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And then on the day of Pentecost, we read about the scheme of redemptions having been perfected. And Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit upon the apostles to guide them into all the world so that they could preach salvation from sin according to the terms of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the Bible tells us about that great scheme of redemption. If it were not for that, then the Bible would be worthless. We need to appreciate the all-sufficiency of the Bible because it supplies our basic needs. Psychiatrists, psychologists tell us that we have three basic needs. We have a need to be loved, we have a need for security, and we have a need to hope for good things in the future. The Bible supplies all of that needs, all of those needs. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's the promise that God does love us and the proof that God loves us in the giving of His Son to die for us so that our sins could be forgiven. The Bible offers a security such as cannot be offered by any man or any group of men here upon this earth. For example, in 1 Peter 5 and 7, Peter said, Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. 
And in Matthew 6 and 33, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And in Philippians 4, beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul wrote, Be careful for nothing. One translation says, Be anxious for nothing. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now notice the next statement. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall rule in your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now what more security could a man want than that? Cast all your care upon the Lord. If you have some need, tell God about it and put your faith and trust in Him to take care of that need. And then the peace of God which passes understanding. You say, I don't understand. Well, this peace of God that passes understanding will rule in your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Indeed, the Bible offers security such as no man is able to offer. And it offers hope. Beyond the grave. Revelation 2 and 10 says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. You remember Revelation 14 and 13 where John said, I heard a voice from heaven which said unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead. That sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, said the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. We need to appreciate the all-sufficiency of the Bible because it provides answers to the basic questions that man has. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I headed? Those are the basic questions of the human race for, uh, in all uh, generations. Where did I come from? The Bible says in Genesis 1 and 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. That's where we came from. Now, the evolutionist doesn't know that. The atheist thinks that we sprang up from a one-celled being which had its origin back yonder in some warm pool somewhere millions and billions of years ago. He can't, he can't explain where those things came from. But the Bible says that God created man. That's where I came from. We were created. Now, what is my nature? Why am I here? Well, I'm created in the image of God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that God looks like I look. It means that man's created in the spiritual and moral image of God. Man has the choice of doing right and wrong. He can sin or not sin. There's not anything else that God has created that has that choice. The difference between an Adolf Hitler and an Apostle Paul is his attitude toward the nature of man. The difference between a, a Kenneth Randolph and a Ted Bundy is the difference in the attitude that they each have toward the very nature of man. Whenever I believe that I'm created in the image of God, like the Bible teaches, if I really believe that, it'll cause me to act like God wants me to act. If I don't believe that, and I believe I'm just another animal, then I'm going to wind up acting like an animal. 
That's one of the reasons that there are so many human beings in the world tonight acting like animals because they don't really believe that they've been created in the image of God. The Bible tells us about our destiny. Where am I headed? Recently, last week or the week before, we sent up in a spaceship a telescope that is beyond human imagination. I'm told that they could put that thing on top of the World Trade Center over in New York and look at a dime lying on top of the Washington Monument and read what's on that dime through that telescope at that distance. Wow. We hope to be able to observe planets more closely than we ever have been before through that telescope and stars and other galaxies that we haven't been able to observe before. But no telescope has ever been invented that can see past the grave. But the Bible can see past the grave. In John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming into which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have an evil unto the resurrection of damnation. You want to see beyond the grave? Read Luke 16. About the death of that rich man and that beggar whose name was Lazarus. We need to appreciate the all-sufficiency of the Bible because of its indestructibility. Today, my wife and I got in the car, and we drove up through Munford, and we sort of looked around up there a little bit. You know, it was 1958 when we moved away from up there. That's been 32 years ago. You think anything's changed up there? You look at me and you say, yeah, Bob, you've changed. Oh, yes, I know it. There's a song in one of the songbooks which says, and as all my friends can plainly see, there's been a change in me. Yes, we've changed. One song says, change and decay in all around I see. Oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. The sun changes. I was reading the other day a book which says that the sun is shrinking at the rate of about 1% every century. Now, that's not too alarming. Don't get excited about that. They said we didn't have to worry about freezing to death. But the sun is changing. People have worshipped the sun. They've worshipped the moon. They've worshipped the stars. But in Matthew 24 and verse 35, Jesus said, These are going to pass away. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But then he added, My word shall not pass away. No, no. The Bible is not going to be destroyed. 
Colonel Robert Ingersoll, who lived uh, in the last century, born in uh, 1833 and lived right on down almost to the turn of the century, went around over the country lecturing and making fun of the Bible and predicting that within a hundred years, the only place anybody would find the Bible would be in museums where it was on display. He lectured on the mistakes of Moses. It would be interesting to hear Moses lecture on the mistakes of Colonel Ingersoll, wouldn't it? Last eve I paused beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, he said, and with a twinkle in his eye. The anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's Word. For ages skeptics' blows have beat upon, and yet the, though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed. The hammer's gone. The Bible is indestructible, and how we should appreciate it. We need to appreciate the all-sufficiency of the Bible because, listen carefully, because of the Christian life. Now, we could talk about the influence of the Bible from a material and social standpoint. You think of the colleges and universities and schools in the, on the lower level as well that have been established because people believe the Bible. Think of the hospitals that have been built because people believe the Bible. The orphans' homes, the homes for the aged, and the many other good things that have taken place and been put together because... Somebody had faith in the Bible as the Word of God. We could talk about the moral influence of the Bible. You think of all of the good people there are who are not Christians after the New Testament order, and yet who are upright, decent, moral people because of the influence of the Word of God in their lives. As a matter of fact, there are people who are atheists who deny that the Bible is the Word of God, who poke fun at the Bible, and yet who are better moral people because of that book that they poke fun of. Be, it would be difficult to, to estimate. We certainly could not overestimate the moral and spiritual and social influence for good that the Bible has had. Did anybody ever tell you of any benefits to this world that have come about because of a belief in atheism? Did anybody ever tell you that he was made a better person because he read some book that some atheist had written trying to prove his atheistic position? No, no, but think of the people who have been made better as a result 
of reading the Bible and reading books that have to do with the Bible. Somebody said that there were two men who were riding on a train. One of them was a mathematician, a mathematics professor in a major university. And he happened to sit down beside the other who was an old man who was largely uneducated, but he was reading a Bible. The college professor said to the man, you know any of the men who wrote that book? He said, no. You don't know who wrote that book? He said, no, I don't. And he said, well, why do you read it? The man said, now, you're a mathematician, aren't you? He said, yes. He said, do you know who wrote the multiplication table? And he said, why, no, I don't. He said, do you use it? Why, certainly. Well, why do you use it? Because it works. The old man smiled and opened up his Bible and began to read again. Look at the good that has been accomplished by the Bible. But the Bible not only has had a great deal of good from a a material standpoint, and a social standpoint, and a moral standpoint, but we're talking about its influence in the lives of godly men and women. Men and women whose lives are spent in serving God and humanity, and this world is a better world in which to live because of people like that. This is a true story. Around the turn of the century, there was a young lady who heard and obeyed the gospel of Christ. The man to whom she was married was very much opposed to the Lord's church. He made up his mind that he was going to do everything he could do to keep her from being faithful. He would threaten her. He would not allow the children to go to church with her, and sometimes he would be so determined to keep her at home that he would tell her, if you leave to go to church, I'm going to whip the children. And many times she would walk down the road leaving the house with the screams of her children, children ringing in her ears. She did not allow that to keep her from serving God. On one occasion, this old rascal made up his mind that she wasn't going to church. And he told her she wasn't going. And he came in and she was getting dressed. And he said, now, where are you going? And she said, I'm going to church. And they began to argue and tempers flared. And he eventually picked up his pistol, pulled back the hammer, put it up to the side of her head, and said, now... Tell me, where are you going? And she said, If you pull that trigger, I'm going to hell. If you don't pull it, I'm going to church. Folks, that's a true story. But the rest of the story is, today, that woman and her husband, who later obeyed the gospel because of her influence, have grandsons and great-grandsons 
who are preaching the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And were I to call their names, some of you would know some of them. That's a true story. Now, of course, that's just one example of the influence of the Bible on the lives of men and women. I know there are some people who are hypocrites. I understand that. There are some people who pretend to be living according to the Bible, but who are insincere. But it is also a fact that, that there are men and women who are sincerely serving the Lord according to His Word, who are dedicated, not perfect, none of us are. But the world is a better place in which to live because of people like this. The very best men and women in this world are imperfect, they make mistakes. But whenever we allow the Bible to be our guide, we can be pleasing to God, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are faithful Christians because of the influence of the Bible. I want to ask you in closing the lesson tonight, what's your attitude toward the Bible? I really believe that one of our basic problems lies in the fact that we do not have the proper appreciation for the Bible, God's Word. What is your attitude toward the Bible? Do you love it? Do you appreciate it? Do you consider it as being from God and therefore absolutely true? Are you living in harmony with what it teaches? Have you obeyed the gospel of the Son of God? If not, don't you think you're being somewhat foolish to delay doing so? Don't you think that you ought to believe the gospel with all of your heart tonight? Tonight, make up your mind to give the rest of your life in serving God. That's called repentance. Confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Be buried with Him in baptism so that your sins will be forgiven. Now's the time for that. Or if you're a child of God you haven't been faithful in serving Him, now's the time to be restored. To continue living in rebellion against God, against His Son, is to indicate that you really don't love the Bible, you really don't appreciate it, you really don't consider it to be very important. We would urge you to make things right. Repent, confess your sins, and pray that you might be forgiven. Brother Randolph will stand over here and I over here to help you and assist you and receive you. Won't you come while we stand together and sing the song?